we talked a little, a few classes ago about how Paul II um, terminates transcription, and they actually have a movie for it now, so I thought I'd show you that. It's pretty neat. It's over here. Let's see if I can get this up. If you remember, I described this to you. I was wrong. It's not Yosemite Sam. It's, it's actually Black Jack Shalak. So that's the, uh, okay. So this is, uh, this is RNA polymerase here, right? Okay. Okay, okay, I surrender. Here, take it, take it. <laughs> oh, and here comes the RNA. It's coming out of it. <laughs> and RNA polymerase is running down the DNA, transcribing. Using the RNA as he goes along. And then the exonucleus comes in. So that's uh, basically what I covered last last class as to how. All right, so we'll finish where I got to. Uh, so I got up to here last class. Um, oh, this is the last class for the midterm, right? So, well, sorry. There's a lecture on Thursday, but it's not on the midterm. Today is the last lecture that's on the midterm. The midterm's on next Tuesday. Okay, so midterm two. I'll post what uh, rooms we're going to be in. Uh, we're only in two rooms this time, so I've spread, spread across four. And uh, obviously there's office hours on Thursday, and I'll set up uh, some online office hours also before the, before the exam. So when we're talking about, uh, we're gonna, today's lecture is about um, Recombinant DNA technology. Uh, we have one more thing that I want to talk a little bit about before we get to that. One last element of gene expression. We talked last class about uh, transcription, uh, controlling gene expression, and ribozymes, and alternative splicing, and some other things. This is something that only came out in the last 10 or so years. Very exciting. Uh, the clues for this came, the clues to how this occurs started in the early 90s, and then a big discovery in the late 90s. And it was generally worked out. It's still being worked out. Um, but this is this idea of RNA interference. Okay, and this one, uh, Craig Mello and Andrew Fire, Nobel Prize, not many years, not that many years ago. Uh, but this is this is a mechanism by which organisms control, <coughs> excuse me, control gene expression. But we take advantage of it in the lab to influence gene expression for genes that we can't make knockouts, right? So a lot of times a gene that you might be interested in is what we call essential, meaning if you delete it from the genome, the cells die. That's a problem if you're trying to study it. But we can actually interfere with the expression of that gene using this pathway called RNA interference. Uh, it's unique to eukaryotes. It's also generally, with some kind of hedging, uh, unique to higher eukaryotes. So yeast doesn't really have this, or at least it doesn't really have depending on which yeast you're talking about. It doesn't really have RNA interference that, that I'm going to cover in this case. But the idea is, okay, um, we've got some RNA polymerase II uh, transcripts that are non-coding. Okay, so this is a gene. This is a gene on the DNA that's transcribed by RNA polymerase II. It makes an RNA. So this is a Pol2 transcript, right? It's capped and it's polydentylated, but there's no protein coding gene on it. So this is non-coding. But it folds up into these 
hairpin shapes that are recognized by this enzyme called drosha in a complex called microprocessor. So microprocessor is a complex of proteins which include this protein called drosha. And drosha takes this primary, what we call a primary microRNA. So this is, eventually we're going to get down here and have a microRNA, right? So this is a primary microRNA. Drosha cuts this long RNA of many hairpins into single hairpins, okay? So now this primary microRNA is cut into a pre-microRNA. That pre-microRNA has just one hairpin on it, okay? That's exported into the cytoplasm, and another protein called dicer cuts that pre-microRNA into these small, what we just call small RNAs, that get loaded into this complex called RISC, okay? So there's this, and uh, these double-stranded RNAs, so when the pre-microRNA is exported to the cytoplasm, it's still a hairpin. But when Dicer cuts it, so here's the pre-microRNA like this. But when Dicer cuts it, it cuts it here and here. So now you've got basically what used to be one RNA, which is now two RNAs. Okay? We just call these, these small double-stranded RNAs that get loaded into this RNA-induced silencing complex called RISC. One of the two strands gets put into risk. Not the one strand we call the guide strand, the other strand we call the passenger strand, right? And the important thing to bear in mind is that the guide strand that gets loaded into risk will be complementary to messenger RNAs. So let's say that this strand is degraded and this strand gets put into risk. So let's say that this is risk is made up of several proteins, but I'll just draw one bubble. So here's the messenger RNA in risk. And this will have complementarity to a messenger RNA, right? That, so you're going to get, so this would be the cap, and this would be maybe the poly A tail. And when RISC uses the complementarity in the guide strand to bind to the messenger RNA, it inhibits the translation of that messenger RNA. Whether it inhibits the translation of the messenger RNA or does something else depends on the degree of complementarity. If it's an imperfect match, meaning there's complementarity between them, but there's a couple places where there's some bubbles, right? Let's say there's a GG here, and then this forms nicely, and let's say there's a CA here. If the complementarity isn't perfect, then risk just binds there, and now the translation of this message is inhibited. If the complementarity is perfect, it cuts it. It cuts the messenger RNA. And the messenger RNA is degraded. Either way, the expression of the messenger RNA drops. Okay? So we use this in the lab now to basically, if we've got our gene of interest that we want to inhibit the translation of or the expression of, we can make double-stranded RNAs and transfect them into cells. They get taken up by risk and risk runs in and, and either degrades the messenger RNA or inhibits its translation. Yeah. The passenger strand of the double strand, yeah. So one of these is destined to become the guide strand, one of them is destined to become the passenger strand. The guide strand gets put in risk, the, the passenger strand is degraded. Which strand gets put into risk? There are some rules for that. And I could go into it if you want, but I'm not gonna. We're gonna do that in 3130. That was your question? Just, just, just the sequence here. So there's going to be, uh, you know, there's going to be G's and A's and U's and C's in here, and the mess and the guide strand will have evolved. So 
So in the nucleus, you have these we take advantage of this in the lab. We make, we make double-stranded RNAs that are complementary to, to the messenger RNAs we want to inhibit. But these uh, primary microRNAs, they evolve to have sequences that are the opposite sense. They're reverse complement to, to messenger RNAs. So they actually control the expression of, of messenger RNA targets. So this is an under, unappreciated element of gene expression. So you can imagine that this risk complex with this guide strand in it, if the complementarity is not perfect, that's required. So there's, you know, on the order of, tw excuse me, 21, 23 nucleotides in this guide RNA. And let's say you need 20 out of 23 to be matched to the messenger RNA for risk to find it and bind it and inhibit it. Well, there might be many messenger RNAs that fulfill that criteria, right? There may not just be one messenger RNA. So you can actually have risk go around and find many messenger RNAs whose sequence matches the guide RNA reasonably well doesn't have to be perfect, let's say 19 out of 21 or something like that. And now when it binds to those messenger RNAs, those messenger RNAs are either going to be degraded or they're going to be, their expressions, going to, the translation of the protein is going to be um, inhibited significantly. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Okay, so the question is, what is, how does risk inhibit translation? Does it inhibit initiation? Does it inhibit elongation? They're still fighting over that. Um, you know what? I'm not going to go into it, <laughs> just because I want to confuse people too much. But yeah, uh, we can talk, or I can point you to some papers. But yeah, it inhibits translation. Translational repression, that's all you need to know. So if it's near perfect complementarity, messenger RNA is degraded. If it's Partial complementarity, you get translational repression. Okay, so this last lecture before the uh, midterm, I want to talk a little bit about some of the methods we do in the lab. This is more of a practical lecture. I'm going to talk about some of the things that have come along. So when we talk about genetic engineering and molecular biology in the lab, we're using a lot of techniques that stem from our understanding of a lot of things we've talked about, right? Um, if you went to the Gardner lecture last week, it was great. Um, we'll talk maybe a little bit about that at the end of the lecture. But um, when Jacob and Monod, we talked about Jacob and Monod, right, when we were talking about lac operon, as that work was coming out, I can't remember if it was Monod or Jacob, said basically, and this was a quote from the Gardner lecture also, they quoted this, you know, this is all very interesting and very nice to understand and, and, and study, but we're not really ever going to be able to work with these things, they're too small, right? How can we access that, that nucleic acid information that's literally at the level of atoms, right? How can we actually, we could never really engineer something, right? Well, that, was, that turned out to be incorrect. We're actually reasonably good at engineering molecular biology and making modifications, uh, edits to, to genetic information uh, in the lab, in agriculture, some less contentious a bit. Um, and more and more in animals. Um, and we don't do it because we're down there with tweezers doing it ourselves. We're just taking advantage of enzymes that do that naturally. Right? We, we express enzymes that have that function in certain contexts, and we're going to talk a little bit about that today. So, um, so we'll talk a little about recombinant DNA technology. This was kind of the beginning of it. This was only three years after, I can't remember if it was Jacob or Bruno, one of them. Only three years, he said that quote in 1970, and then three years later we had the first recombinant DNA. So it didn't take long. 
Um, so this was a very important paper, Cohen et al. and PNAS in 1973. This was the first example of taking a piece of DNA and manipulating it in the lab and making a new piece of DNA that we, that we decided how we wanted to do it. And I think you guys are probably already a little bit familiar with how that would have happened. You can imagine that you have a plasmid, and we're going to cover this in the next few slides, so we'll go over it again. You have a plasmid. We talked about restriction endonucleases. You can take a restriction endonuclease and cut a piece of DNA with it. You can purify those two pieces of DNA away from one another, put in a new piece of DNA that came from somewhere else. We talked about the, the enzyme ligase. Ligase will take two pieces of DNA and ligate them back together. Well, if you can do that, you've basically made a new piece of DNA that, that nature didn't. So that's basically, we'll talk a little bit about how that's done now. And we'll cover a representative example, okay? So first you have to make sure you understand what a plasmid is. I think everyone knows what a plasmid is, but I'll go through this quickly. Plasmids are naturally occurring extra chromosomal pieces of DNA. Uh, so this is not the chromosome, right? This is basically a like a, almost like a mini chromosome in bacteria. They have everything they need to replicate autonomously, all right? They have an origin of replication. We talked about an origin of replication. That's what DNA polymerase is looking for, to replicate it. The other thing that it's important that plasmids have, so plasmids don't c contain any essential genes to the bacteria, right? So if you ask the bacteria, would you like to have a plasmid or not, the bacteria would say, all things being equal, I'd rather not, because it's just extra DNA for me to have to take care of and replicate and waste resources on. And so bacteria that have a plasmid in them for no good reason usually lose the plasmid. They, as, the pl as the bacteria divide, the, um, by chance, one of the two bacteria may not get the plasmid or plasmids, and that bacteria will grow more quickly because it doesn't have to replicate this plasmid along with all its other DNA. Unless you give the bacteria a reason to, ha to keep the plasmid, right? And so often what we find on these plasmids are these anti um, antibiotic resistance markers. For example, ampicillin resistance, tetracycline resistance. If you put this plasmid into E. coli and then grow the E. coli with ampicillin there, then the bacteria really, really need to keep the plasmid. If they, this gene on the plasmid is, it detoxifies the ampicillin that you've, the antibiotic that you've added. And so in the absence of this plasmid, the bacteria will die. Right? So now every bacteria that's growing in that, on that plate or in that culture will have the plasmid. Okay. So uh, what we're going to do is we're going to basically do a, a basic, the basic cloning strategy. This is the original one that was done, right? We're going to basically take a plasmid and we're going to use a restriction enzyme or restriction enzymes to cut the plasmid. Okay. The piece of the plasmid that has the origin of replication on it and all the other sequences that it needs to replicate, we're going to call the vector, right? That's the DNA that uh, is, helps propagate the plasmid. And then we're going to take a new sequence of DNA and we're going to insert it into that vector and that'll be, we'll call that the insert, okay? So this covers a little bit of what I already talked about, what DNA, uh, what plasmids need to have to be able to do this type of work. There needs to be an origin of replication. In the absence of an origin of replication, the plasmid won't divide in E. coli. We need this antibiotic resistance marker or markers. This is what makes the bacteria want to keep the plasmid. In the absence of the plasmid, if you grow the bacteria in the presence of these markers, in the presence of these antibiotics, the, the bacteria will be killed. And then we want some restriction enzyme cleavage sites, right? We talked about restriction enzymes already. 
So there's some sequences in the plasmid that we can use to cut the plasmid to put our new sequence of interest into. Uh, we've already talked about restriction enzymes, so I'm not going to go into this again. Um, but we talked about um, various restriction enzymes, bless you, um, frequency of cutting, and whether or not you get stickier blunt ends, right? So a restriction enzyme that cuts here and here will produce a sticky end because the, cutting, the cuts are offset. A restriction enzyme that cuts on exactly on either side of uh, either strand will create a blunt end. And we talked about doing this math already. So if, um, if you forget that, then you may want to re review that lecture. I think it was lecture one or two of this section. So how would we clone foreign DNA into a bacterial plasmid? Okay. So here's our plasmid here. Here's our eukaryotic chromosome. And we, this is just a schematic as to how we might do it. Okay. We introduced a restriction enzyme that will cut the plasmid in two places. Okay, or at least or one, doesn't have to be two places, but let's say it cuts the plasmid once, and so now you've got this linearized plasmid. It used to be circular, but now it's linearized because you cut it. And you can see this little kind of groove here. That is kind of code for you thinking it's a sticky end, right? You've got these, basically, these overhangs on either end, right? It's not a blunt end cutter. You take a eukaryotic chromosome, and you cut it with the same restriction enzyme. So the, this chromosome that used to be megabases long is cut into tiny, tiny pieces of which the ends are flanked by the same sticky end that you have on the plasmid. Okay, so if you cut with BAMH1, you would have a vector a plasmid where you've got this GATC overhang on one strand, and then on the other strand, on the complementary strand, again, this GATC overhang on the other side of, this, of, the, of the cut. If you cut the eukaryotic chromosome with BAMH1 also, you're going to also have all this DNA with GATC overhangs. You mix these two things together and add ligase. Well, ligase is going to seal that nick. It's going to seal that, not nick, sorry. It's going to seal those two strands back together. And now you've made what's called a recombinant vector. Recombinant meaning engineered, so to speak. Okay? And now you can put that plasmid back into E. coli, select the antibiotic resistance marker, and you're going to get thousands of plasmids in thousands of, of bacteria growing. And you can isolate the plasmid from the bacteria relatively easily, and now you've got this piece of eukaryotic chromosome that you have basically, what we, this is what we call in the lab cloning. We've cloned that fragment, meaning we have taken it out of its natural context, meaning a chromosome, and we've made it accessible to us using, in the lab, using recombinant DNA technology. Yeah. Yeah, those are the ones we use. Yeah. How do you isolate the plasmid? Plasmids are originally naturally occurring, but we have techniques in the lab that will separate chromosomal DNA from plasmid DNA. It's relatively, it's been, there are kits now. It's pretty, it's pretty simple. You mean back into the bacteria? The, make, the putting the insert into the plasmid makes it the recombinant plasmid. Yep. Yeah. 
So we do what's called a transformation. We take the bacteria, the plasmid, we put it back into the bacteria. One bacteria gets one plasmid. You put that on a plate, and that bacteria will grow as a colony. So now that, that colony will have billions or trillions of bacterial cells, all of whom have the plasmid. Yeah. Nothing. Good question. What keeps the plasmid from ligating it back to itself? That is much more efficient than putting in a piece of foreign DNA. Yes. So we have tricks for that. One way you can do it is to make sure that the abundance of this inserts is much, 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 much higher than the abundance of the vector. So it's just a mass action thing. The likelihood it's going to bind to one of these is higher than even itself, just because the concentration of free ends of this is higher than the effective concentration of the, of the other end of the same plasma. But we have tricks that we do also to make sure it doesn't ligate on itself. But it could. So here's another uh, schematic of the same thing. Here's our chromosomal DNA. In this case, we're doing two restriction enzyme sites, an ECHOR1 site. ECHOR1 cuts like this. It's a sticky end cutter, so you get your two sticky ends. And on this side, you've got PVU2. PVU2 cuts like this, and you get a blunt end on PVU2. You've got a plasmid that, you've also, that also has an ECHOR1 site and a PVU2 site, so you've got this plasma that's got a sticky end on one side and a blunt end on the other. You take the chromosomal DNA that's flanked by the ECHOR1 site and the PVU2 site. You mix this insert and this plasma together. You add DNA ligase, and they hopefully come back together like this. That's one way. That's, the, that's a simple way to make sure that the plasma doesn't religate on itself. You use two different enzymes, right? So if you just use ECHOR1, so there's an ECHOR1 site here and an ECHOR1 site here, well, then the likelihood that you're going to put in a new piece of DNA is less than just the plasma closing back on itself right? Because those two ends are compatible. But if you use ECHOR1 over here and PVU2 over here, well, the sticky end is not compatible with the blunt end. So the likelihood that that's going to relegate it in itself is lower. But if you provide an insert that's got the exact match, sticky end on one side, blunt end on the other, well, that's going to be more likely to go in. So uh, I wanted to cover this term, this polylinker. So we use a lot of plasmids, in the lab just to shuttle DNA of interest around. So it's not very useful to us when a plasmid has only one good restriction enzyme site in it. Why is that? Why, why can't we use ECHOR1 for everything or BAMH1 for everything? Well, the problem is if I'm studying, okay, the gene we study in my lab is called LA. If I'm studying LA and I want to clone the full length LA DNA into a plasmid, but in the middle of the LA gene, there's a BAMH1 site, right? Well, if I use BAMH1 to cut my DNA fragment of LA, well, I'm going to get a cut in the middle of the gene, and I'm not going to get the full gene, right? So it turns out, by chance, there are going to be restriction enzyme sites in the DNA you want cut that you don't, you don't want to use those restriction sites because you're not going to get a full fragment. You want to use restriction enzyme sites that are on either end of the DNA that you're interested in. And so for a particular gene or, an, or a different gene, you're going to be able to use this restriction enzyme site, but not that one. And so to make our life easier, we've made plasmids that have what's called a polylinker in them. It's basically been engineered to have many restriction enzyme sites, one right after the other, in the place where you're hoping to clone genes. So here's your plasmid. Somewhere in here is an origin replication and an antibiotic resistance marker. And then this very important part of the plasmid called the polylinker, whenever you clone something into this plasmid, you're, it's meant to go in here. 
And it's one right after the other, ECHO-R1, PST-1, HIND-3, all these different restriction enzyme sites. And I look at my gene of interest, and my gene of interest has a BAMH1 site in it. And I say, ah, I can't use BAMH1. But my gene doesn't have a HIND-3 site in it, nor an ECHO-R1 site. So I can use ECHO-R1 and HIND-3 to clone my gene of interest and get the whole fragment, the full fragment. And then I don't have to worry about those enzymes cutting my piece of DNA of interest in the middle of it. And I can use this plasmid because it's been engineered to have a lot of convenient restric restriction sites in it. So here's a um, sample cloning scheme. Okay. So going back to this map we did of PBR322, okay, there's a PSD1 site in the middle of the amp gene. Okay. So this PSD1 restriction enzyme site, it happens to be in the middle of this ampicillin resistance cassette. So we're going to take PBR322 and we're going to cut it with PSD1. So here's the uncut plasmid. It's got an ampicillin resistance marker and a tetracycline resistance marker. We cut it with PST1. Now my plasmids have been cut right in the middle of the ampicillin resistance chain. Okay. And now I've got my foreign DNA that's also been cut by PST1. So there's a compatible sticky end there. And I, like, I try to ligate that foreign DNA into the plasmid. And I add DNA ligase. And I make, sometimes a piece of foreign DNA goes in. And I get this plasmid like this guy here. It's got a red new piece of foreign DNA. And it's been inserted right in the middle of that ampicillin resistance gene, right? Because remember, the, the PSD1 site that I used to, to cut the plasmid is in the middle of it. Some of the plasmids, like the question that was brought up over here, they just relegated them on themselves, right? So this one didn't put in a piece of foreign DNA. It relegated it on itself. And so now I take this mix of plasmids. Some have no insert. Some have an insert of varying sizes, right? Because I just took foreign DNA like a chromosome, and I cut it up with PST1, there's going to be varying sizes. And so this one's got a big piece, and this one's got a tiny piece. And I do a transformation into E. coli. Okay, so some E. coli don't get any plasmid. Those ones are all going to die when I put them on antibiotic. Some of them get a plasmid that has an insert, and some of them get a plasmid that doesn't have an insert. Okay, so then what do I do? Well, I plate this transformation mix onto a plate that has tetracycline in it. Okay? Now all the ones that didn't get a plasmid die. So I, I select only for bacteria that got a plasmid. And like I said, each of these colonies on the plate came from a single bacteria that got a single plasmid. So all the colonies, all the bacteria in the colony are clonal, what we say clonal. Okay? Each bacteria, so there's a, I'm going to focus on that little dot there. That's, that came from one bacteria that got one plasmid. So all the bacteria in that colony have the same plasmid in it because that was one bacteria that got one plasmid, one bacteria became two, two became four, four became eight, and eventually it made the colony. So you can look at this. This is all basically, it's almost like a library of all the different bacteria that got plasmids. All right? But they all got a plasmid. The ones that didn't get a plasmid died because I played it on tetracycline. Now I want to select for the bacteria that got a plasmid with an insert. I'm not interested in the ones that just relegated on themselves, right? That's boring. That's the plasmid that I started with. So how do I do that? Well, I take a colony, this, this colony here, and I use a very scientific tool called a toothpick. I've autoclaved it, so it's sterile. 
and I take a little bit of the tooth, I take a little bit of the colony with the toothpick, and I put it on my another plate that has tetracycline on it. Okay. And then that same colony with my toothpick, I take the other half of the colony and I put it on a plate that has ampicillin and tetracycline on it. Okay. We've already selected for tetracycline, right? All these bacteria growing on this plate have the tetracycline mark, resistance marker on it, right? So all the colonies that I pick on this plate are going to grow on the plate that has tetracycline on it. But what I'm doing is I'm basically organizing them. I'm saying this is colony one, colony two, colony three, colony four. And then over here, I've got the same colonies, but plated in order. I keep the same track, colony one, colony two, colony three. You can see there are some here that aren't growing. Why aren't they growing? These are the ones that got a piece of DNA that disrupted their ampicillin resistance gene. Okay? This one, this colony here that's growing, well, this came from a plasmid that just religated on itself. So it's got a good tetracycline resistance marker. It's going to grow on this plate. And it's got a good ampicillin resistance marker. So it's going to grow on this plate too. But I don't want that one. Right? That's just religated vector. This one, however, I, when I put the piece of foreign DNA into the ampicillin resistance gene, I killed the ampicillin ampicillin resistance gene. It doesn't work anymore. So this bacteria that grew up to be a colony, when I take that bacteria and I plate it on the tetracycline resistance plate, I'm going to get a colony. But when I take that bacteria and plate it on this plate, I'm not going to get a colony. It's going to be an empty spot because the ampicillin resistance gene has been disrupted. So that's a colony I care about, the one that died. So how do I pick a colony that died? Well, I go back to this plate, right? Remember, this was colony 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8. Colony 8 that died here, well, I also put it over here, right? Colony 8, that's one. That's one that got a foreign piece of DNA. So I can pick that colony and extract the DNA and mess around with it, do fun things. Yeah, so it's important you keep track, right? I mean, you, you've got your, your, your tet plate and your amp tet plate. And I took colony one. Etc. Okay, I took a colony and I put a little bit here and I put a little bit here. And I took colony two, I put a little bit here and a little bit here. And then I put them in the incubator and I waited a day and all of these grew up. And one, four, and six grew up, but not two, three, and five. Two, three, and five are ones for which the ampicillin gene was busted, was broken. And so as a result, they got a piece of foreign DNA. Those are the ones I want. So now I go back to this plate and I take colony two and I take colony three I take colony five, and I extract the DNA from them, and subsequently study them further. How would they not get mixed? They can't, they can't, they can't run around on them. They don't have legs. They, you put them on the plate, and they just stay there. Single colonies stay single colonies. The, all they can do is grow from the spot that you, they, they fell on. This is just another blow up of what I just showed. Does that make sense? 
Um, so hopefully that general logic makes general sense to you. Uh, but this is more, um, you know, if I can give you some advice, this is more conceptual than a lot of the things we've covered in the course, right? A lot of the things we covered in the course, okay, what is, which are the basic amino acids? Once you memorize them, you got it, right? This is a little bit more understanding the procedure. So if you don't have the text, you may want to go through the text in the library and just read up. There's a nice section in the text where it describes this. You can read it and just go through it and make sure that you kind of understand the logic of it. Again, you don't need to understand it more so. If you can understand the logic from the lecture, great. But I always find you don't need to understand it more so than we covered in the lecture. All right? That still stands true. But I always find that for these types of things where I have to think it out, the more different ways I see it, the better I get it. Okay. So let's say I study my protein of interest, La, in humans, and I want to make la. I want to make the protein. Okay? Um, you know, used to be, back when Banting and Vest figured out insulin, you used to get insulin from pig or dog. They would take pancreas of these animals and grind it up and extract insulin, and, and you'd, if you're diabetic, that's what you'd get. And that works great. But now we don't do it that way. We have E. coli make it for us, right? We can take the human insulin gene and put it in bacteria, and they make it for us. So it's a lot simpler. So how do we do that? Well, we've already talked about plasmids. We've talked about polylinkers. Okay. Imagine that you know, on one side of the polylinker, you put a promoter and an operator. And on the other side of the polylinker, you put a terminator. Well, if you insert your gene of interest in there, you put a, the vector also has a ribosome binding site. You can insert your gene of interest in there, into the polylinker. And now when RNA polymerase starts transcribing here and stops transcribing here, it's going to make an RNA of your gene of interest. And if you've in integrated a ribosome binding site, then the ribosome is going to bind to that messenger RNA and it's going to translate your gene of interest. Remember, the, the code on code is universal. So uh, GCA coding for alanine in humans also codes for alanine in E. coli. So you can take your human gene and put it in here, and we do this every day, uh, we take our human gene, put it in here, and then E. coli will make our protein of interest. Most of the time we do this, we use the LAC promoter and the LAC operator. And we talked about this chemical, IPTG, right? IPTG looks like allolactose, okay? So in the absence of IPTG, the operon will be off. LAC repressor will bind to the operator, and you will not get expression of whatever's downstream of this promoter, because RNA polymerase is not binding here. So whatever gene you've put in here, you're just not expressing it. Until you decide, OK, a time equals 0. I want to start making my protein of interest. And I take this chemical IPTG that you buy from Sigma or wherever, and you just make a solution of it, and you add it to the microbial culture that you're growing in liquid. And now lacropressor gets that, lacropressor thinks that that is allolactose. IPTG binds to lacropressor. Lacropressor gets off of the operator. And now RNA polymerase binds and it starts making this. And this is basically what it looks like. So here's an SDS page gel of basically lysed E. coli. So, you know, you can see maybe on the order of 
30 or 40 proteins here, but this is basically every protein that's in the cell. Just you can see some darker than others because of their abundance. Okay? And then when you induce them, you get a huge, I mean, this is such a powerful promoter. And remember, uh, I don't know if I mentioned this already, there's only one E. coli chromosome, right, in E. coli, but E. coli can carry 10 or 100 plasmids per cell. So whereas there's normally one copy of a gene in E. coli, there's going to be maybe 100 copies of this gene. So once you turn on its expression, it turns on, it, it's, it's as if E. coli is turned into this protein-making machine for the protein that you care about. So you can see here, this is the difference between the uninduced and the induced cells. The, new, <laughs> the big, crazy new band you see is the one you want. Right, so it can work very well. It's very robust. And we can make milligrams of the protein we care about this way. Questions on that before I get to PCR? Yeah. Induced means, uh, it's just a term we use to say, so the question is what is induced? Uh, like I can induce you to study by telling you if you don't study, you're gonna fail. You know, I'm trying to like lead you on to do it. Right? So we can induce E. coli to make the protein by adding IPTG. Okay? So it just means switch on or have at it. Go. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. So, yes. So the question is about the polylinker. And yes, we've got a promoter and an operator on one side, a terminator on the other, and a polylinker between them. Yeah. So, I mean, all this stuff here is just, is, is sequence that RNA polymerase is going to transcribe, right? So this is going to be plus one. It's going to transcribe along here. And it's going to keep transcribing until it gets to the terminator, right? So this is all stuff that's going to be part of the messenger RNA in here. But the important bit is what you're going to insert here, right? So there's maybe an echo R1 site and a PST1 site. Ah. You're going to cut the polylinker with those two restriction enzymes. You're going to have your piece of DNA you care about that's flanked by those restriction enzymes. And you're going to add the cut plasmid and ligase. It's going to go in there. You're going to add ligase. And then instead of just polylinker, there's going to be a whole gene in here that's going to be part of the transcription unit. I mean, it's just cartoon space. You know, I mean, it could be five nucleotides. It could be 100. Yeah. As long as there isn't a terminator between the promoter and, and where you care about, then the polymerase is just going to go over it. Remember, when the ribosome starts translating, it's looking for this. It's looking for this ribosome binding site that we talked about. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You have to insert the, the question is, do you have to insert, you have to insert, there's a few things you need to think about, which we haven't talked about. Obviously, you have to put the gene in, in the right direction, right? If you put in the gene backwards, it's got to go N-terminal to C-terminus, right? The ribosome starts at AUG and goes to the stop codon. So the N-terminus, the AUG should be on this side, and the C-terminus should be on this side. Of, what you, of the orientation you put it into the polylinker. If you put it in backwards, you're going to make garbage crazy protein. That's not what you want. You also have to make sure you're in frame, right? 
the ribosome binding site will impose a certain frame on the uh, indexing of the ribosome down the, down the DNA, down the RNA. So you have to make sure that when you put the gene in, you have to think about these things. Am I, is my gene of interest in frame? If it's not in frame, you're not going to make the right protein, right? So there's some things to think about, but it's just, it's not that hard once you get the hang of it. Okay, so I think you probably have come across this already. All of this stuff that I talked about used to be really hard until PCR. Um, you know, is it really feasible to clone my gene? I'm interested in this human gene law. Is it really feasible for me to extract that from a human cell and from human chromosomes? Maybe, but it's very difficult, right? For all the DNA in the chromosome that's the one I want, there's billions of base pairs of stuff I don't want, right? How do I get that piece out? And how do I make enough of it, right, to, to have success with a ligation, right? Uh, I might have to grow bags of cells before I had enough DNA to be able to do that. So making lots of a DNA sequence we care about became a lot easier when Kerry Mullis apparently was driving home in his car one night. And he's a weird guy. You should read up on him. Uh, he like, I don't know how he came up with the idea, but it's a relatively straightforward idea. But this idea of polymerase chain reaction. So it's this idea of um, doing a chemical reaction to make lots of whatever DNA you want. Okay? New York Times said basically molecular biology is divided into you know, we divide, you know, you got BC and AD. Basically, it's, you got molecular biology before PCR and molecular biology after PCR, right? What do you need to be able to do PCR? So again, the, the, we're going to go through PCR in a second. The idea of PCR is to take any DNA sequence we want and make a lot of it, right? First thing you need is a copy of the DNA that you care about, a template. We call that the template. So if you want a human gene, that you want to amplify by PCR, you need, you can't start from yeast. You gotta have a human cell, right? Forensically, this could be a sample that was left at a crime scene. Who knows what, blood or, you just need a, something that has the piece of DNA you care about in it. You need primers or oligonucleotides that are complementary to the sequences flanking the DNA to be amplified. Hopefully that'll become clear. You need if you're making DNA, you need the substrate for making DNA, which is deoxynucleotides, DNTPs. You need a polymerase. You need the right buffer conditions, meaning the right pH and salts, magnesium. We talk about magnesium for these types of reactions. And you need a thermal cycler. Thermal cycler is just a machine that changes the temperature. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about that. So this is the summary of how PCR works. Okay, uh, is it broken down on that? Yeah, okay. So basically what you're gonna do, here's the region you care about. I want a lot of this piece of DNA. So you can imagine that you know, this light blue region is the entirety of the cell's DNA that you don't want, and this dark blue region is the one you do want. So I want a lot of this, okay? What am I gonna do? Well, first thing I do, and this is why you need the thermal cycler. A thermal cycler is just a machine that takes a sample and heats it and cools it. So if I've got my sample, my DNA in a buffer in liquid, in water or salts and, and buffer, 
and I add heat, I, I heat it, well, what's going to happen? Well, the two strands are going to melt, right? They're going to come apart. We talked about that. Now, in that reaction, I've got these two primers. And the sequence of the primers is what gives the direction to the reaction, okay? So I've got, what are primers? We also call them oligonucleotides. They're short little pieces of DNA that are complementary to the region I care about. One of them points five prime to three prime this way. The three prime end, the hydroxyl, is the arrow is here. It's pointing that way. So on, the, on, the, on this top strand, it's going from, here's the three prime end here, right? On the top strand, this is the five prime end. Okay. So the primer, when you cool down, the primer, it's got a five prime end here and a three prime end here, and it's complementary to this region that I'm going to amplify. So as I cool the strands down, because the primers are in such vast excess, so for every template in the tube, there's a trillion primers, right? So once I melt these apart and, I, the, and the primers are there, once I cool down, instead of these two strands coming back together, the primer is going to jump in there just because there's so much more of it. And it's going to anneal to, this one's going to anneal to this strand, and this one's going to anneal to this strand. And the important thing is that the three prime hydroxyls are pointing at each other, okay? This one's, each primer is complementary to one of the strands, right? Now I add a polymerase. Well, I've got these three prime hydroxyls here, right? And I've got DNTPs. And what do polymerases do when they have three prime hydroxyls and DNTPs? They polymerize, they make DNA. So this one, on this one, the polymerase is gonna find this three prime hydroxyl and start going this way, da, 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 da. And this one's gonna find this prime hydroxyl and go this way, da, 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 da. And then you're gonna end up with this. So basically what I've done is I've taken one copy of this blue region and turned it into, turned it into two copies. Okay. On, this, on the top half, the polymerase kept going, right? It didn't just make the blue region. It didn't know to stop here. It just kept going, right? And on the bottom one, it kept going on this way, right? But what I want to bear in mind, what, what you want to bear in mind is that when we repeat this, when we do it a second time, Right? When we melt this side and this side again, right? so two became four, four is about to become eight, right? the primers are going to anneal again. Can you focus on this one, please? The primers anneal to this strand we just made. Right? This was the strand we just made in cycle one. When the polymerase chugs along here, it's not going to keep going on forever. It's only going to go until it runs off the end here. This is where our DNA polymerization started in the last cycle, right? This is where the primer annealed. So this one can't run down the chromosome forever. It's only going to get to here, and then it's going to stop. So you can see this one here. What you have to bear in mind is that as you go from 2 to 4 and 4 to 8 and 8 to 16, okay? And I, I, there's, a, there's some, there's some uh, movies I've shown, I, I've included, I believe, did I? I didn't. Ah. These pieces that contain only the sequence of interest, okay, they amplify geometrically, meaning 2 becomes 4, 4, 8, 16, 32, 64, 128, 256. Every cycle they grow as a exponential function. Whereas these 
things that uh, are longer than the region of interest to be amplified because they primered off of the original template, they grow arithmetically, meaning 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, 14, 16, 18, 20, 22, 24. So what that means is that after 35 cycles of this, you've got billions of these, but you've only got maybe 100 of these. Okay. So you have to kind of understand the difference between a geometric, right? Like the difference between this and this. These grow this way. And things that, because remember, there's only one template. Every time you do a new cycle, a primer binds to the template and makes something that's longer than the, than the um, amplified region. Those things grow this way. So I often find that that's a little bit clearer when I see it kind of happening in a movie, and there are some really good movies. So I will find one. I've, I thought I put it in the lecture, but I didn't. Um, but I will post one online. So look in the, I'll do it today. Look in the uh, lecture 14 component of the Moodle, and I'll find a movie that, that kind of illustrates that. Hopefully that's clear. But the point is that after many cycles, the DNA that's in the tube is overwhelmingly this this piece that's just between the two primers. Okay, so now you've got basically, whereas you had basically one copy, when you started you had one copy of it and it was in the context of a chromosome. At the end of 35 cycles, or 20 cycles even, you've got 99.999% of the DNA in the tube is just the DNA you want. And you can purify that now and work with it. That's right. Oh, uh, yes, thank you. Uh, yes, yes. Thank you. To the X. So after 35 cycles, you've got two to the 35 pieces. Yeah. You'll get in the lab one day and do it. I mean, you could run it on a gel, right? But this piece of DNA is going to be a particular size. And there's going to be huge numbers, amounts of it. So when you run it on a gel, it's going to be like. Now we're going to do a fun trick, OK? On the five prime ends of my primers, OK? Imagine that, so just same thing as what I showed here. These are the primers here in yellow. On the five prime ends of my primers, I'm going to stick restriction enzyme sites. Okay? They are not complementary to the template. So they're not going to anneal to the template. But there's still sufficient complementarity, three prime, to the restriction sites that the primers still anneal in the right spot. So the primers still anneal, and they still serve as templates for making 
new DNA. But what happens is, because I included this extra little, just an extra six little nucleotides of a restriction enzyme site on the ends, at the end of my PCR reaction, not only do I have the DNA I want, but it's flanked by the restriction enzyme sites I'm going to use to clone it into the plasmid. So that's a very useful little trick we do. Okay? So this piece of DNA that I wanted to clone into a plasmid, maybe it didn't have an ECHOR1 site right at the end, conveniently, for me to put into my piece of my vector. But if I order my primers, in addition to the region of complementarity, this region might be 25 nucleotides, lots of region and comp make a nice complementarity seed with the, with the template. And then there's just an extra few nucleotides on the 5 prime end that's not complementary to the template, so it's not going to anneal. It's just going to be kind of hanging off there. But then once I amplify it, my piece of DNA is going to have that on it because it was part of the primer. Now I can cut that with my restriction enzyme and put it right into my vector. Uh, it used to be that, this is me, a long time ago now. Um, used to be that, so this relies on us changing the temperatures, right? You gotta denature the, every cycle you gotta denature the strands to get them apart, anneal them back together to get the primers to anneal, extend the DNA with the, with the polymerase, the problem is that when PCR was first done, the only polymerases we had were polymerases from, say, E. coli, right? When you melt the strands to denature them at 95 degrees, E. coli polymerase is not very happy with that. It, you kill it. You denature it, right? So then you anneal the strands back together, and you have to add E. coli polymerase to it, and it does the polymerization for that cycle. At the end of that cycle, you heat it up again, and you kill the polymerase again, cool it back down, add more DNA or E. coli polymerase to it. You had to add E. coli polymerase every cycle because every time you did the melting, the denaturation, the E. coli polymerase became denatured, became inactivated. Well, that's good if you've got undergrads in the lab that don't mind sitting there and doing that every day, all day long, but uh, it's kind of cruel. So we decided the nicer way to do it would be to get polymerases from thermophiles, right? These are bacteria that are perfectly happy growing at 95 degrees. And so this is a hot spring in Yellowstone National Park, and it was in a hot spring like this that they discovered this microbe, Thermos thermophilus. Um, and we've now cloned its DNA polymerase, and that's the polymerase, or, or variant polymerases, similar polymerases, that we use for PCR now. When we heat to 95 degrees, because the polymerase has evolved to be perfectly happy at very high temperature, you don't have to keep adding the polymerase after every cycle. It, it lasts for the, whole, for the whole cycling run. We also didn't used to have thermal cyclers. We used to have to have sand baths. We had a sand bath at the annealing temperature, the sand bath at the denaturation temperature, and a sand bath at the extension temperature. And you'd have someone that would sit there and put the sample into the sand for 95 degrees for 30 seconds and then put it into the annealing one, and then put it in the extension one, and then they'd add new polymerase and put it back, and they'd do this for about six hours, right? Now we have a machine that does that. Okay, so the last thing I want to talk about, or one of the last things I want to talk about before we uh, get off of PCR. What may, another thing that may have occurred to you, we got this question about putting the DNA in the right sense, the right orientation, right? Well, there's another problem with human genes, right? 
if we want to take a human gene and express it in E. coli and make protein from it, well, the chromosomal copy of the human gene has the DNA sequence for the introns in it. That's not a problem in a human, because when you make a messenger RNA in a human, the introns get removed. But E. coli doesn't have a spliceosome, right? E. coli does not do spliceosome splicing. That's unique to eukaryotes. So if we take the human gene with the intron, off the chromosomal DNA with the intron sequences in there and put that into the plasmid of E. coli, and then we ask E. coli to make that protein, well, it's going to transcribe the DNA with the introns. The introns are not going to be removed, and you're not going to make the right protein, right? So how do we make a copy of the human gene, or mouse gene, or whatever you care you're talking about, how do you make a copy of that that E. coli will, will work with? What you need is a piece of the gene where the introns have already been removed, right? Well, that would be the same sequence as the mature messenger RNA, right? The mature messenger RNA has been spliced, okay? So we want to make a, mess, a, a DNA that is complementary to the mature messenger RNA. We call that a complementary DNA or a cDNA, okay? The introns would be removed. And then if you put that cDNA into E. coli, we would have a piece of the gene that would work. So how do we do that? Well, David Baltimore got a Nobel Prize for showing that there are enzymes out of viruses, viruses called uh, retroviruses, a famous one is HIV. Uh, these are viruses that have RNA genomes, but they use an enzyme called reverse transcriptase to convert their viral RNA into DNA, such that the DNA can then be integrated into the host chromosome. So basically, we can take a mature messenger RNA, okay, so this has been spliced. We add to it, so all messenger RNAs end in what? A's. We add a DNA primer that's just T's, right? So the DNA primer will anneal to the A's. And then we add this enzyme reverse transcriptase and deoxynucleotides, deoxyribonucleotides. And this reverse transcriptase enzyme, and reverse transcriptase reads the mRNA and makes DNA from it. So we've converted the RNA, the mature messenger RNA sequence, into a complementary DNA sequence. Okay. We can then add an oligonucleotide that goes the other way, that hybridizes to the cDNA we just made and fill in the other strand. And now we've made a double-stranded DNA sequence whose sequence is complementary or the same as the original mature messenger RNA you started with. And if we put that into E. coli, E. coli will make that into a protein because the introns are gone. So this relies on this use of this enzyme that can back convert RNA to DNA. If you remember the central dogma, it goes mess DNA to RNA to protein, right? And that was the original idea. But we now know that it can go the other way. It can go RNA back to DNA. And the enzyme that does that is this reverse transcriptase. If we do that in a PCR reaction, Okay, if we combine the reverse transcriptase step with the PCR, we could set up the PCR reaction such that it does this first, and then this be just becomes PCR amplified. Right? If we combine them together, we, do, we call that a reverse transcriptase PCR, or an RT-PCR. Where does reverse transcriptase come from? We, we've cloned it, and we uh, purify it, 
from usually uh, it's a virus that infects mice, and a, that's M-U-L, murine superscript. That's the, that's the brand name of it. Uh, and so one that's from, it's a virus that infects mice, and there's another one that's from a virus that infects birds. But we've basically cloned the gene for it, and we express that in E. coli. So we don't actually get the enzyme from the virus. We make it the same way we make all recombinant proteins. We clone the gene, express it in E. coli, ask E. coli to make it for us. Yeah, so we can, now, we can now use this as a template for subsequent PCR or, or further manipulation to put this duplex DNA into the plasma. That's right. This is now what you can put in the plasma. You can't put RNA into a plasma. But because we back converted the messenger RNA into DNA, this we can put into a plasma. Sequencing. I'm not sure I'll have time to get through all of this stuff that I wanted to do today, but we'll see how far we get. How do we determine the sequence of a piece of DNA? Okay. So this was devised by Fred Sanger. Uh, so since then, we've always called this Sanger sequencing. He got a Nobel Prize for this. This was actually the second Nobel Prize he got, which is pretty awesome. <laughs> like, yeah. Another Nobel Prize, uh, got, got one of those already. Just put it up on the show, the other one. Um, the first thing you have to uh, bear in mind, this is not a big conceptual leap to what we've already covered. In fact, we've already done this. We've already talked about this. This idea of primer extension, right? So we've got a template strand. We have, same as what we talked for, for for PCR, we use a primer or an oligonucleotide that is complementarity to the to, the temp, to a template strand. This is, the, this, is the, this is the piece of DNA that we want to know the sequence of. Okay? Importantly, uh, to be able to do Sanger sequencing, you already need to know a little bit of sequence of the, of the template because you need to be able to devise a primer that is going to anneal to that template. What we're going to do is we're going to, let's say that this is, we don't know this sequence. We want to know what this, this sequence is. We don't know what it is. But we know sequence upstream of it. Okay? And you can imagine that once you know the sequence of a little bit of a piece of DNA, you can walk along the chromosome. You use this sequence to get the primer for this sequence, and you use this sequence to get the primer for this sequence, et cetera, et cetera. The point is that we use a primer that will anneal to the template. And if we add a polymerase and DNTPs, then it's going to do primer extension. It's going to basically replicate DNA along the template, it's going to move along the template and add to the 3' hydroxyl of the 3' end of the primer. Okay, so this is basically, this, this, there's no difference here to what we just talked about with PCR. Okay? We're adding a primer, it anneals to a template, we add a polymerase, and it's putting in DNTPs. Okay? But what if that reaction, in addition to DNTPs, we spiked it with what's called, spike means we put a little bit of, you guys know what spiking is, right? People spike the punch at a party, right? I'm not condoning that. It's bad. But um, in addition to the DNTPs, they put in a little bit of dideoxy NTPs. That is, 
NTPs that in addition to having a two prime deoxy, it also has a three prime deoxy. What's going to happen when we have this as part of the reaction? This base, let's say that this base is this A. Okay? Let's, instead of DATP, it's DDATP. Right? What's going to happen for this DATP when it gets added? It's got it's three phosphates. You're going to lose the beta and the gamma phosphate. They're going to come off. And this alpha phosphate is going to be linked to the 3' hydroxyl of the preceding base, the base before it. Right? Can this dideoxy nucleotide do that? Sure. It's got three phosphates on it. So this DDNTP can be added to the chain. The problem is, when the next nucleotide is to be put on, well, now this is supposed to be the free 3' hydroxyl for the next nucleotide. But there's no 3' hydroxyl here. So these can be put into a polymerase reaction, but they act as what we call a chain terminator. Okay? When this gets put in, the polymerization reaction will stop. Okay? So why is, why is that important for figuring out the sequence of something? Well, we're going to do a reaction where here's our primer, here's our template, here's that 3' hydroxyl. I'm going to add polymerase and the four NTPs, DCTP, DGTP, DATP, and DTTP. But I'm going to split this reaction into four. This one, this one, and this one, and this one. I'm going to spike it with four different dideoxys. In this one, I'm going to spike it with dideoxy ATP. In this one, I'm going to spike it with dideoxy CTP, GTP, and TTP. Okay? Four different spikes and four different reactions. So what's going to happen when I add the polymerase in general to this reaction. What's the first nucleotide it's going to see? It sees a C. So what's it going to want to put in? It's going to want to put in a G, right? Well, for this reaction where I spiked it with DDATP, it's got all four normal nucleotides and dideoxy ATP, right? In this reaction, it's just going to put in G because that's the only thing it has to put in there, right? And for this reaction, it's only going to put in a G. And for this reaction, it's only going to put in a G. But for this reaction, where I spiked with dideoxy GTP, it can put in a normal G or it can put in a dideoxy G. Do you follow? If it puts in a normal G, it's going to keep going. But if it puts in a dideoxy G, it's going to stop. What that means is that some of these reactions, but not this reaction or this reaction or this reaction, some of this reaction is going to stop after it puts in the first nucleotide. And when I run that on a gel, I'm going to get a band here. Now, the next nucleotide that's going to be put in is an A, right? Because on the template strand, there's a T. So it's going to want to put in an A. Where I spiked it with CTP, the only thing it can put in there is A. Where I spiked it with G, dideoxy GTP, it can only put in A. Where I spiked it with dideoxy TTP, it can only put in A. But where I spiked it with dideoxy ATP, it can put in an A or a dideoxy A. If it puts in a dideoxy A, it's going to stop. If it puts in a normal A, it's going to keep going. So this proportion of the reaction that put in a dideoxy A is going to stop, and you're going to get a band. And that band is going to be one base pair bigger than the one that we put in in the last reaction. So basically what's going to happen is you're going to have a stop or a keep going in the different reactions 
And whether you stop or keep going is going to depend on what nucleotide was in the template strand. And when this is all done, you can just read up the gel what the sequence is. G, A, T, T, C, G, A. You understand? Kinda? Some people are nodding. Yeah? Right. So every time it puts in a dideoxy, it stops, right? So eventually, so all these, so this guy up here, right? This G, this band up here. This is a band that put in a G here, and put in a G here, and put in a G here, but put in a dideoxy G here, right? So you've got to spike it the right amount. If you spike it too much, then they all stop at the first one, right? If you don't spike enough, then they all just blow through every, they never put in a dideoxy. So you've got to spike it the right amount such that at each spot, it puts in a little bit of the dideoxy, enough that you can see as a band on a gel. But eventually, yeah, it peters out. You can only sequence on the order of 1,000 nucleotides this way. We've optimized it so that we can get about 1,000. And the original human genome was sequenced this way. So it's 1,000 nucleotides per go. We got, what, 3 billion bases? It took a lot of sequencing <laughs> to do it this way. 3 million sequencing runs, right? That's why the first genome was really expensive. But now we do it a different way. So you need uh, a primer and a template for each thousand base pair run this way. This is the way we used to do it. When I was in a PhD student, I actually did it this way. I'd have a gel where I would look at it on the gel and I'd count the bands up. That got a little bit better. Now instead of uh, gels, we use the dideoxys are colored with dyes. They glow. And so instead of um, a gel, you get a machine that reads the colors that are coming off. Imagine that the G is green, uh, G is, well, green, instead of A, instead of uh, reading as bands, imagine that the A is red and the C is blue and the G is green and the T is yellow. Well, you've got a machine that instead of looking at a gel, like you do this manually, it just reads the order of the colors coming off. It goes blue, yellow, red, red, green, blue, etc., etc. So that made life a little bit easier. So I'll just, um, unfortunately, I'm not going to get, well, yeah, I'm not really going to get to CRISPR, which is too bad. But... I'll cover, <laughs> everyone's like, shut up. Uh, I'll, I'll talk about CRISPR very briefly, and I'll, then I'll go over next class. I'm not going to cover CRISPR. I'm just going to make an announcement, basically, about it. Um, the last thing I want to talk about, so we talked about this Sanger sequencing method. Okay? This is the way we used to do it with, with gels, and then we moved to basically these colored dyed nucleotides. What we do now is this, what we call deep sequencing or luminous sequencing. You can imagine that you've got a million templates, okay? And you spread them out over a slide, on a slide that you look at under the microscope. And a computer does, basically you do the same chemical reaction that I talked about with the colored nucleotides, 
All right? Each spot on the slide refers to a template that's undergoing a sequencing reaction. So there's this sequencing reaction here, and this sequencing reaction here. And basically what's happening is, the, as the sequencing reaction is going on in real time, a computer is looking on the slide and keeping track of every dot and watching how the dot changes color. So let's say this dot, after the first incorporation of dideoxys, it's red, second one still red, third one red, 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 blue, green, yellow. It translates that into a sequence. The sequence of that DNA that's on that dot is C, 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 A, G, T. On the same slide, a little bit away, there's a different dot that got a different DNA template that's also being sequenced in real time. It's going yellow, blue, green, red, green. That gets translated into T, A, C, G, G. Doing it this way, you can take a whole genome, every piece of DNA in the cell, put every little piece of DNA on a different spot on the slot, on different, of, of the same slide, and the computer keeps track of it all. And so instead of costing, instead of doing it this way, and it costing a billion bucks for one genome, you can do it this way, and it costs maybe a thousand bucks for a whole person. Remember, why does it change colors every time you, remember, the nucleotides themselves are labeled with dyes. So when it puts in a G, it glows green. And when it puts in a T, it glows yellow. I mean, I'm not going to get so much into the, I, I could get into the specifics of it. Um, it has to do with chemical blocking groups and things like that. It, it, it shows you the color of the last nucleotide that was put in. Yeah. I'm not going to get, be able to talk about CRISPR-Cas9. This is something that just was discovered in the last three years and has drawn, gone, people have gone crazy about this. Um, maybe I'll talk about it next class, but I just want to point out that this was a very big deal, breakthrough of the year in 2015, cover of nature, cover of science, and tonight, no, tomorrow night, there's a Hacking the Genome talk, a panel discussion, where they've asked me to show up and talk about it, which I'm not exactly, hopefully I don't mess it up. But anyways, um, the cool thing is that this fellow Feng Zhang, who was the first person to Feng Zhang is the first person to edit a mammalian cell using this technology. And so there's a lot of questions that are coming up now about using this technology to make edits to the human genome, edits to the human germline. Do you do that to cure disease? Do you do that to have kids that have brown hair versus blonde hair? Who knows what? So this is going to be a neat talk. This happens tomorrow in the evening, and it's, it's a pretty exciting time. So we'll talk a little bit about... Uh, CRISPR next class, but we're not going to cover it for the midterm. Okay?